This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of February 6, 2023, here are some top stories. Phoenix has changed a lot over the last half century. Once a mid-sized agricultural community, it's grown into a bustling metropolis. And what used to be just a son's town is now one of the nation's premier sports destinations, hosting the grandest events. That includes Super Bowl 57 on Sunday in Glendale. But as Ron Dungan reports, despite ascending to the biggest stage in sports, the Valley's relationship with its own teams is complicated. We're a city of transplants. Most of us come from somewhere else, yet our stories are pretty much the same. We pack our stuff and drive to the desert. We learn about things like snowbirds, monsoons, and jumping choya. We share our neighborhoods with javelinas and coyotes. We forget about snow. Over the years, that story repeated itself over and over, until Phoenix grew from a small city to a big one, with freeways, nightlife, and sports teams. But a lot of people who move here never really let go of the place they came from. In the Arizona Republic, they had a page that was news from home. So Phoenix wasn't home necessarily. These are migrants who had come in and they wanted to know what was going on back in home, where they had come from. That's Phil Vandermeer, an emeritus history professor at ASU. He says that other American cities have grown rapidly, but they drew people from the surrounding area. Chicago took in people from Illinois farm country, for example. Phoenix draws them from all over. Uh, draws from California, always has. It also drew heavily from the Midwest, drew some from New York, some from the Pacific Northwest. So there are a lot of different areas that people are coming from. As Phoenix grew, it replaced communities with suburban homes and strip malls. Of course, what happens in Phoenix, or the Phoenix area, because it's, it hit Tempe and Mesa and, and everywhere, is a common problem that goes across the country. Downtowns hollow out, and so there isn't a central core. While community leaders tried to revive downtown Phoenix, they noted that the city only had one professional sports team, the Suns. They wanted more. You know, if you are a, a city that has four major league, you know, all four major league sports, then you seem to be yourself more major league. Much of America is obsessed with sports. Sean Klein, a lecturer with the Global Sport Institute at ASU, says that games are a fundamental part of human existence. Once you get enough people living together, you start to see these features develop, art and sport and philosophy and religion. These things start to develop. They're answering human needs that we have. Strip away the hype, the big salaries and the Budweiser commercials, and you're left with games. Sport, game, organized play of some kind or another is a significant part of almost every culture and society we, we have experience with. So it's just from that alone is a sign that it must be meeting some need that we have. It's in our nature. Why are we trying to hit the ball over the net? <laughs> There's no real reason other than to experience hitting the ball over the net. Eventually, new teams arrived. Football, hockey, baseball. 
but the Suns fan base has the deepest roots. ASU professor and former sports columnist Paula Bovin says that's in part because of the success they've had over the years. They've got great tradition in town. They've had much more success consistently, I think, than a lot of the teams in town. And people have stuck with them. Other teams haven't been so lucky. The fans showed up, but some of them would root for the visiting team. The most obvious reason for that is that we're a city of transplants. But there are other reasons. It's a complicated city. It's a multi-layered city. It's a city that attracts all kinds of different people. We're still growing and evolving as a city. We've learned that things like stadium location matter. So can winning. We're here. We packed our stuff, made a home in the desert. Some of us will move to other places, but a lot of us aren't going anywhere. We're home. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. You can find part two of this story on our website, kjzz.org. In science news, until recently, scientists believed brains don't fossilize. However, the work of an international team of researchers has not only challenged that idea, but also uncovered secrets that went against common research into how brains evolved. Greg Haney has more on the team's work analyzing the 525-million-year-old fossil. The process that freezes structures of ancient life forms in time requires specific conditions that are much more likely to capture hard structures like bone rather than soft tissue. That is especially the case for brain matter. Sometimes, however, there are exceptions. Over the last decade, University of Arizona professor Nicholas Straussfeld has identified multiple cases of preserved brains in multiple arthropod fossils. Modern arthropods include spiders, insects, and crustaceans. He took pictures of the fossils and used Photoshop to remove specific light spectrums until he saw a nervous system in the visible red wavelength. This offered clues into how they were preserved. The nervous system has a very high concentration of iron-containing proteins, and that's probably what resulted in the, the, in the preservation of, of the nervous system. In 1984, fossils that were barely half an inch long of species Cardiodictian catenulum were discovered in Yunnan, China. It was part of a famous deposit of fossils called a Changjiang fauna. That species is part of an extinct group of animals called armored lobopodians, with velvet worms being the closest living relatives. Frank Hirth with King's College London researches evolutionary neuroscience. The significance of these lobopodia is that for a long time they have been considered as ancestral to all arthropods. Scientists believe that these lobopodia were very common during the Cambrian period. The trouble is they're terribly small, very, very small indeed. And I was in Kunming at the laboratory in 2018, and I was looking at one particular species, and I noticed that in some specimens, they showed some very interesting structures that suggested to me they must be neural. The fossilized brain was not only notable for being identified, but also offers clues into brain blueprints. One of the most important discoveries is that the ancestral situation was non-segmented. That, of course, is uh, unprecedented and also unexpected, which means that those brains that we see nowadays may not be segmented either, and we may have to revisit our interpretation of the arthropod head and brain. That segmentation is key. Because all life has lineages dating back to the Cambrian era, this offers insights into how brains evolved. It contradicts the, the, the established idea since 1882 that the head of insects and crustaceans and spiders, etc., etc., 
um, were, were specifically segmented. And there's been discussions about this for for yonks, you know, real rows amongst scientists. And it was very cantankerous very often in the literature. Straussfeld says human brains are segmented and divided into three major parts, the forebrain, midbrain, and hindbrain. They are distinct in the terms of function and development history. Brains of modern insects show similar brain segmentation to vertebrates, and it's unknown where the similarities started. So this suggests that these domains that people have been calling segments are very ancient, and that the idea of segmentation has only sort of been imposed intellectually, uh, because people have seen later examples of the this evolutionary process, which shows these very, very strict divisions. Frank Hearth in London said they have been able to identify a common signature of how all brains formed by examining genes of living organisms and comparing them to fossils. And even though we are looking at the brains of animals relating to arthropods, there could be some implications for vertebrate brain development. And it turns out that there is a, uh, if you like, a ground pattern required for brain formation. And that knowledge we can now extrapolate to other species, including chordates and vertebrates like us, to ask, does that similar ground pattern apply there? The UA's Nicholas Straussfeld says studying genes of our old ancestors could offer major insights. If we can find that these very, very close similarities, then I think the case is strengthened that these are ancient, ancient rules of the game that must have occurred in some ancestral group before the divide occurred between the um, vertebrate and the invertebrate lineages. And it goes beyond that. Straussfeld says there's more than just knowledge of what was when it comes to studying the evolution of bug brains. Biologists in particular now find it very urgent to find out how life began because we're doing such damage to how life is at the present. So the more we can inform the public that this is so important to understand what life is and how fragile it is and how amazing it is that it survived, I mean, really catastrophic events over the last half a billion years, maybe maybe a few people might be persuaded to take better care of life as it is now on this planet. For KJZZ News in Phoenix, I'm Greg Hawney. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. People experiencing homelessness in Metro Phoenix have been on the rise, and the cold temperatures this winter have made it even more difficult to be on the streets. The show's Lauren Gilger has more. Most people don't think of Phoenix and think about freezing temperatures. But winter in the desert can get cold, especially at night. And when it does, the growing community of people living on the street here has to find ways to stay warm. I went to the state's largest homeless encampment in downtown Phoenix, the area called The Zone, early one morning last month, and saw firsthand how that can pose serious threats to their safety. Good morning. I was trying to see if this girl was right here. Good morning. She might not be here. I don't think she's here. I came early this morning looking for her. Nettie Washington-Reed is out here every morning at 4 a.m., talking to people, getting to know their stories. So you know, you know, everybody out here? Pretty much. I'm not going to say everybody, uh, but majority of the people, yes, we do know. She's on the street outreach team for Phoenix's Human Services Campus, a sort of one-stop shop for homeless services in the Valley. Here, there's a 900-bed shelter, a soup kitchen, and health care services. And around it, because of the services that are available here, is The Zone. We pretty much, as outreach team, we pretty much do a lot. We do connect to services um, and let them know, especially those that are new in the area. We talk to a lot of people, so we pretty much know when 
there is a lot of new people that comes to the area because everybody pretty much sticking as a group or as a family type of bond thing. And like I say, it's just about connecting them so we can get them out of here and get them housed, you know. Here, roughly 1,000 people are camped out in makeshift shelters, tents draped in blankets and tarps, sleeping bags on the ground. There are bike wheels and old luggage piled up next to boxes, broken furniture, scrap wood, and grills. It's a city of its own for those who have found themselves without a place to live. And it's cold. Good morning. Good morning. So it's in there. How you doing? <laughs> Good, honey. How you doing? I'm well, I'm Lauren. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Charles Gibson. Do you mind answering a few questions? No problem. So you have a car. That's that's something, right? Yes. That's very special. <laughs> and it's paid for, so. And it's paid for. Yes. How long have you been living out here? Uh, next month will be one year. Why'd you come? Why did I come? Um, well, I, had lo- I lost my apartment, and me and my ex-wife was trying to get back together, and it, it didn't work out, so left me in a situation of homelessness. So what's it like out here in the winter? I mean, it's, it's cold. You, you have the car, so that's a little better. Yeah, it's, it's a little better, but, but uh, hand and feet, uh, that's like the worst part of, of, of the, you know, so, you know, you can't keep your car running all night and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, lots of blankets, you know, so uh, uh, donating from uh, people passing through, driving by, uh, some of the regulars. And so I got plenty of blankets and I got a sleeping bag where I can wrap my feet up and, you know, I got gloves and scarves and hats and you name it. So that's that's the secret. Lots of blankets. On this morning, the city of Phoenix is about to conduct a cleanup here, a controversial undertaking that has faced federal investigations and lawsuits. So we're out here. It's like, what, 11th Avenue Jefferson. This block is getting clean this morning and it's it's cold, and people have some pretty elaborate structures built up to keep warm. Right, absolutely. They're going to have to move them? Yes, they will. They um, already was told we, you know, in advance that they will do the street cleanup. But however the area is cleaned, safety here is a real concern. From drug use to human feces, the voices of those calling for the city to act have gotten louder. Last year, the zone made headlines after a dead fetus was found on fire in the middle of the road here. And as Nettie is showing me around the area, I saw one of the most serious safety concerns in the zone firsthand. Yeah, as you can see, they are moving already. Yeah, they're starting to pack up. There's a lot of stuff here to move. How does this work? Does a lot of it get thrown out? A lot of people, when they chose to go in shelters, they do choose. They, they have to pick and choose what they want and what they do want they don't want to keep. And what they don't keep, this, the, city do, the city do move them. Did a fire just start right here? There's a fire, yep. Hey, move the animal! Hold on, hold on. They're getting animals out. People are running out. Volunteers are making sure everyone's out. It's okay. Tents are burning. Oh, it's gone up in flames. A fire erupted inside a tent just a few yards in front of us. They're trying to get everybody out of the area. This fire is growing quickly. Something just exploded. People rushed to get farther away from the fire, while two workers ran up to it with fire extinguishers. They tamped it down, but it's not out. You okay, Corey? Oh, that's a big fire. 
He was here. This is his Corey. Yeah, this was his tent. Corey, you want to talk to her? She want to ask you a question. This was your tent here? Uh, yeah, me and my friends. What happened? I don't know. I was laying down again. It caught on fire, just like the other one. Yeah, it looks like there was just one down there. Yeah. That's a big fire. So this is everything everything you own there? Pretty much. Here comes the fire department. Oh, they want us to move back. As firefighters get the blaze under control and people slowly disperse, it becomes clear that the only person who's surprised by what we're watching is me. This is what we go through. Sorry. She oh, came this no, time. It's okay. Typical day in the, in the zone. <laughs> it sounds like this is ordinary. And, and that's because people are making fires, right, to keep warm. Yeah, it's cold out here. It's cold, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty typical, especially this time of year. They're out here trying to keep warm, then they end up losing all their stuff. Or one person will try to keep warm, and it, it starts a fire, and, and the whole line goes. Yeah, it's yeah. Sad. That's Heather Vega, another member of the outreach team. So how many of these have you seen? Like one a day here lately. It's been about, yeah, it's honestly been about one a day. If not one a day, like you'll have two on one day and then you'll you'll miss a day or two and then you'll have two or three and then you'll, you know I mean, then the next day they'll have one. Like it really, this is a common thing down here, especially this time of year. Nettie and Heather say they'll work with the people who lost everything today and try to get them into housing immediately. Oh, you, I talked to you this morning, remember? You yeah. said you had the kitty. Okay, so we'll help you, we're, we're definitely gonna look for it, okay? We'll help you find her. She runs in and out, she's always with me, in and out, in and out. How can we help? Not, now we're going to help you find the kitty. Now we have to really try to find you a way to get out of here, okay? Yeah, and we'll come up dangerous. with her. Can we help? I got to find my We're going to find your kitty. find your kitty, okay? But like I said, the plan was, you remember I talked to you this morning, the plan is we're going to try to get you, get you housed with the kitty, okay? Yeah. <laughs> All right? Yeah. That's the plan. The cleanup will continue on this block of the zone, erasing any remnants of this fire and what was lost. Tents are starting to be rolled away on dollies. Sanitation trucks and cleanup teams with rubber gloves on begin walking through the encampment. They have shovels and security guards. As Heather says, it's a typical day in the zone. I also spoke with Captain Rob McDade at the Phoenix Fire Department, who told me fires like this are reported to them not every day, but often, and it's a big concern for the department. Fire crews treat these like house fires with all of the services that come with that. These are people who just lost their home, no matter what kind of home it is. Captain McDade said it's their biggest fear that someone will be critically injured in one of these fires, and they work with the people in the encampments to try to prevent that. In business news. As the world began to catch its breath from the COVID pandemic, an outbreak of monkeypox swept the globe and headlines in 2022. While healthcare providers battled the virus itself, another battle over its name arose. By the end of the year, the World Health Organization had announced that it would phase out the term monkeypox, citing the need to move on from what it called racist and stigmatizing language. The new name? Mpox. So when it comes to disease, what's really in a name? Kirsten Dorman has more. 
It's not uncommon to name diseases after animals. There's swine flu, bird flu, and mad cow disease, just to name a few. But Dr. Frank Lavecchio says it's all about the nature of the disease and the implications of its name. You might say, what's the big commotion? Well, it turns out that there's a lot of stigma associated with certain names. For example, when it comes to something like swine flu... That comes from you inhaling things, you know, close to the pig, say, you know, respiratory. Lavecchio says naming diseases after animals isn't the problem so much as misconceptions around animal-to-human transmission. When people jump to conclusions, he says, it contributes to stigma. When you hear monkeypox and you hear that men have sex with men are associated with getting monkeypox, you might think that, you know, might be associated with monkeys where men are having sex with monkeys. Certainly not the case. Some within stigmatized communities affected by the virus say that while the name change is a win, it may be too little too late. The Southwest Center provides services to promote health equity with a focus on the LGBTQ community, communities of color, and those living with HIV-AIDS. Casey Simon is their senior director of healthcare operations. He says sometimes achieving tangible equity feels like pushing a boulder up a hill. What we have right now are more people to lift, but we also have more rocks. We're able to make more progress, but there's also more progress to be made. Simon says he hopes to see society shift away from jumping to conclusions when it comes to outbreaks. It's less about the the change and more about that we're continuing to, to do things after the damage has been done and really not learning from the past and, and trying to learn in the moment is just not good enough anymore. David J. Johns is the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. He says the way we talk about viruses like MPOX can affect the way we think about them. And thinking of them as only affecting certain communities leads to additional problems. There's a way in which people who are privileged or feel privileged as a result of not being a part of stigmatized or minoritized communities that end up being vulnerable to uh, disproportionate harm. Marshall Shore is the project manager for the Arizona LGBT Plus History Project. There is this common thread of trying to find a scapegoat. Who, what do we blame for this? Shore says that scapegoating behavior also carries over to viruses like the Spanish flu and COVID. When you first look at HIV AIDS, you have the name GRID, which was gay-related immune deficiency. It was considered to be a gay-only disease. Shore says there are parallels between misconceptions and stigmas associated with HIV AIDS and MPOX. And then that blaming of someone, oh, you have it, you must have gotten it this way. Shore says MPOX dates back to the 70s, but racialization of the original name and recent stigma attached to it necessitated the change. As our knowledge of the disease progresses, that changing of the term also highlights that. Lavecchio points out that even our understanding of where MPOX comes from has changed from when it was discovered in captive monkeys. We know that now monkeypox, the most common carrier, the most likely animal reservoir is rats. With a better understanding of disease, Simon says directing resources where they're needed most without singling out certain communities is key. It's telling the truth. If we just started from the truth, every time there was a situation, I think we wouldn't be finding ourselves in a position of having to fix. Johns says that change in language is important because it's underscoring the importance of telling the truth. One of the challenges that we find 
is that um, stigma often results in a retelling of stories that are not based in truth. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, Wednesday afternoon, the state Senate passed a resolution to waive Arizona's K-12 spending limit for this academic year. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports that means schools won't have to make massive budget cuts in the last few months before summer. With the school spending limit in place, districts wouldn't have access to about $1.3 billion in funding that the legislature allocated for them last year. The Senate passed its resolution to lift the cap just a day after the House did the same. Democratic Senator Christine Marsh was one of 23 yes votes. Honestly, I am very grateful that we are acting today to relieve the stress and anxiety that parents, students, teachers, and communities have been facing. Without the funding allocated for them, some districts were looking at massive layoffs and school closures. Senator Anthony Kern was one of seven Republicans who voted no on the resolution, calling for more accountability from schools before giving them more state dollars. We continue to throw millions and millions, if not billions of dollars in public education, yet the test scores and the reading scores and all that, they remain the lowest in the nation. Other Republicans voted yes, but also promoted proposals to increase transparency on how districts spend their funds. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News. Sonora is among 10 northern Mexican states that will receive federal funds to boost public security. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust reports. Sonora is set to receive some $20.2 million to strengthen state and local public safety programs. Interior Secretary Adan Lopez says the funds are meant to help guarantee security by carrying out a national public safety strategy at the state level. The funds are to be used for training, certification, and professionalization of state and municipal police forces. Violence and crime prevention and programs aimed at vulnerable youth are also among the priorities. Governor Alfonso Durazo said his government will use the funds to restore peace in a state that has seen high levels of violent crime in recent years, particularly in a handful of municipalities where murder rates continue to rise despite a modest overall drop in homicides last year. Kendall Blust, KJ's News, Amosio. And finally, in Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Fifteen Native American tribes, including the Gila River Indian community, will get a total of $580 million in federal money this year for water rights settlements. Jill Ryan has details. The money will help carry out the agreements that define the tribes' rights to water from rivers and other sources and pay for pipelines, pumping stations, and canals that deliver it to reservations. Access to reliable, clean water and basic sanitation facilities on tribal lands remains a challenge across many Native American reservations. In 1908, the Supreme Court ruled that tribes have rights to as much water as needed to establish a permanent homeland. Tribal rights often take precedence over others in the West where there is high competition over the dwindling resource. But in many cases, details about those water rights are not specified. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.